If you have a Bible, meet me in Matthew chapter 1, if you would. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament where we find one of two uh, accounts of the birth narrative of Jesus. And I know for many of you, you've probably heard the Christmas story dozens of times, maybe even for some of you, hundreds of times. Uh, and you may think, you know, what can I possibly learn new from this story that I've not already heard before? Well, the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and which means that the inscripturated Word of God, the Bible, is presently and actively powerful. And so it may appear to be just uh, words written in black on a white piece of paper or pixels on a screen if you're using a phone or device. You may think, you know, this is what, what's so special about this? But the reality is this is actually God's living Word, um, power exerted, so to speak. It's fully effective in accomplishing what God desires for it to accomplish. And this is why, by the way, that we emphasize, as Pastor Adam did, the importance of regular Bible intake, just how important it is to be regularly in the Word. You know, we'll spend hours listening to podcasts and watching shows and listening to music, and all that stuff is fine and good and should be for our enjoyment, but we neglect to actually hear from the voice of God, which is the only voice of power, the only voice of transformation in our lives. So, um, so again, you've, you've heard this story. I know you've heard this story uh, many times probably, but God has something to say to you this morning through it. I can promise you that. God has something He wants to say to you that He wants to impress upon you today. And as we look at the story, we're going we're gonna to really answer three questions from the text. What can we learn from Mary? What can we learn from Joseph? And what can we learn uh, from Jesus? And you'll notice when I read this in just a moment that none of those individuals says anything. None says anything. So what we're going to learn, we're going to learn either by inference or action. What the Scriptures tell us about those folks or what we can uh, infer from what we read. So uh, let me read, the. it's just a short section, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we're going to see some things that are going to apply to us, certainly, from Mary, uh, Joseph, and Jesus. Let's start with Mary. And actually, what we learned from this passage uh, from Mary is, is really, frankly, what Mary doesn't do in terms of this particular context. Uh, all we're told about Mary is that she's betrothed, but she's never been with Joseph. So she's never been with Joseph sexually. And yet, 
she's pregnant. So betrothal was a, a stage in the relationship before the marriage was consummated. Uh, if you was kind of like our engagements, I guess we could say, but it was much more weighty. In fact, in verse 19, Matthew actually calls Joseph Mary's husband. Basically, Mary was Joseph's fiance, only in an arrangement that could not very easily be broken at all. Uh, what happened in the first century was a set of parents would uh, say a set of parents for a young lady would identify a young man uh, to whom uh, they wanted to unite her, and so they would develop a friendship if they hadn't already with the young man's parents, and they would then determine this is the, the man that uh, my daughter will marry. It's uh, well, now we call it an arranged marriage. It wasn't called that then. It was basically all that they had in ancient Jewish history. And sometimes when that happened, the young lady would only be 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, as a parent of, if you're a parent of a 12 or 13-year-old, can you even imagine? But this is the way that it took place. And Mary was probably only, at this time, again, 13 or 14 years old. Well, the groom-to-be would pledge certain obligations to the father of the bride. It's still like this in many parts of the country, as you know, the world, rather. And when the groom fulfilled those obligations, then the bride would come under the authority of her new husband, but she didn't necessarily move into her husband's home right away. She remained with her parents, sometimes six months, sometimes an entire year, uh, until a big, often a week-long celebration, a wedding ceremony would take place, and then the two would consummate their marriage uh, by virtue of the sexual union and move in together, and then, you know, hopefully live forever in, in holy matrimony. Well, apparently the situation that I just read about here in Matthew 1 includes everything but the final stage of the process. So the two uh, had not yet consummated their marriage. Joseph is Mary's husband. But again, they've not, uh, they've not been with each other, which makes it rather shocking and, of course, inexplicable that Mary is pregnant. Verse 18 tells us, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Uh, the word birth is actually the Greek word genesis. Um, it's really fascinating here theologically what's going on. Uh, it's not the normal word, Greek word for birth. It's a different word. It's the word that's translated genesis or origin. Matthew is taking his readers and, and us back to the creation account. He's actually linking, he's showing how Christmas is linked with the creation of the world. Now, what do we know about the creation of the world? The Holy Spirit was the agent of creation. The early chapters of Genesis tell us that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, hovered over the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who began the world's creation. Humanity, of course, had nothing to do with it. Humanity wasn't there when it all took place. And here, even though Mary has never been with a man, the Holy Spirit has come upon her and brought Jesus into human existence. Now, Jesus was not created. Jesus pre-existed His birth, so to speak. But by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is conceived, making a living person in human life. Now, what point is Matthew trying to make here? Again, there's a lot to this uh, theologically, and we don't have time to get into all of it. Uh, but by linking the conception of Jesus 
by the Holy Spirit with the creation of the world, Matthew writing to a primarily Jewish audience, many who would, most who would go on to reject Jesus as the Messiah, Matthew seems to be pointing to the fact that salvation is a work entirely of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus' entrance into the world. So just like the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb, every salvation, every Christian conversion, we might say, is a story of the Holy Spirit's unaided work, in, uh, just like it was in bringing Jesus into the life, into Mary's life, sort of unaware, so to speak. One theologian says it this way, when Jesus Christ comes to anyone in history, even in his advent coming to Mary, it is always the work of the Spirit, not of human preparation or enterprise. You say, what in the world does that mean? Let me, let me say it a different way, and this is our first point this morning. The origin of Jesus and faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit who created the world and is still actively recreating according to God's sovereign will. I put the word origin in single quotation marks for a reason, and, and that's because that word must be understood in light of everything that I've already said, namely, Jesus preexisted His birth. The eternal Son of God was not created, but in His humanity, Jesus does have an origin story, so to speak. He was brought into human existence by the Holy Spirit, and when the Spirit brought Jesus into human existence, it signaled the beginning of a whole new creation. When Jesus was born, He inaugurated a new creation, a new era in salvation history, we might say, dawned on the morning of Jesus' birth. Jesus is the new Adam in this new creation, who would actually accomplish what Adam was made to do or created to do, and that is to completely obey God in every way. Again, the point is not that Jesus was created. He wasn't. But that Jesus marked the beginning of the world's new creation and showcased the Holy Spirit's recreating power. Now, how does this help us? Well, I think in a couple, two very powerful ways, I believe. Uh, one, and think of it this way. So I had two of my kids ask me over the last week or so what I wanted for Christmas, which was very sweet and very thoughtful of them. I really couldn't come up with anything. I mean, there was nothing that I could think of that, that I wanted, which is not because I'm such a content person. Um, it's because it's the opposite. It's because I'm so impatient. For, I don't wait for Christmas for things. If I want something, I just go buy it. So it's not that I'm so content or so spiritually mature. It's because I've already purchased everything I want. But they asked me, what would you like for Christmas? I couldn't think of anything. And then that started, I started to think, well, what is it that I just, what is it I really want? And I, and I started to think, again, that what I really want in life, more than anything else, is not something you can buy. Actually, is the object or the subject of many of my prayers. And that's what I really want is for the people who are in my life, who don't know Christ, who are apart from Christ, who've never repented and turned in faith to Jesus to, to repent and believe. That's what I want more than anything else in all of my life, the people that I know and love, the people in my circles who are outside of Christ, to, to, to turn to Jesus 
for salvation. Well, and sometimes, you know, you have people in your life, and maybe you do like this, you think, I don't know, is it possible? Could that person ever turn to faith in Christ? I think about my own father, and I think, I mean, is it, could it ever really happen? And I know sometimes, and I'm ashamed to say this, but sometimes in my mind, I may actually think that person is just a lost cause. The person is not going to turn to faith. Well, here's what we see, which is so helpful, I think, in this passage, is that there, there are no lost causes when it comes to God. He will bring to faith supernaturally, miraculously, those that He's chosen to do so. In a sense, stay with me on this, but in a sense, every conversion is a virgin birth in the sense that it involves no effort or initiative on the one being saved. It's entirely a work of God. It is, as theologians have said, monergistic, mono-one. Jism is the work of one, is the work of God. And so, how does that help us? Well, I think we can take heart um, if we have those people in our lives that we may think, and maybe we never say this, and maybe you're more spiritual than I am and you don't ever even think this, but there are those people we just, we, we just seem like they're never going to turn in faith. We can take heart that when God sets His sights on them, He will bring them to saving faith. They don't stand a chance against God's supernatural work by His Spirit. So I think there's some hope in that. There's some encouragement in knowing that God will bring to pass what He has designed to do so. And I think the second way that this helps us is it allows us to see creation, or salvation rather, for what it truly is, and that is a new creation. The birth of Jesus signaled the dawn of a new creation. The Holy Spirit is all about recreating. This means if you've got a past that you believe disqualifies you from being loved by God, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Because salvation is a new creation, it means that your past has no power over you. Your past will never condemn you if you are in Christ. It will never be used against you because you are new. And this is how God sees those that He makes new. They are new. For those who come to faith in Jesus, they are, they're born again, the Scriptures tell us, which is a phrase I know has come under great derision in circles and in media and so on, but this, it's the best way to describe what happens to those who trust in Jesus. It, Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. My father-in-law is an FBI, or was an FBI special agent, and he was in the area of white-collar crimes. This is what he spent his, you know, his entire career doing. And, and he, was part of the, he was part of the ones who investigated the Watergate scandal and all kinds of other major scandals. And when you, know, when you work at white-collar crime, it, it's, it takes a long way to get to the person who's actually in charge. And sometimes the only way that the person who's in charge can be discovered or convicted or arrested is if someone else turns on that person. And so the whole, I mean, I don't, I'm speaking a little out of turn here because I've, I've had a few conversations with him about this, but he would say in order to get to, you know, especially if you're, you're, you're talking to somebody who committed some great, uh, you know, financial crime against a very high-powered person, you have to start slow and low and work your way up to get to that person. But if someone would actually turn on, you know, the main perpetrator, then what my father-in-law would do is work with the attorney general and put that person into witness protection program. 
And in the witness protection program, you know, you've probably read about this, the, the, the government can give you and will give you uh, a new name, a new social security number, a new identity, a new job, a new location, and sometimes, this happened very rarely, but sometimes even a new look. If you were the sort of person, if you would be recognized, they would help to alter even your physical appearance. But even still, even still, they could never give that person a new past. They could never help that person truly shed his or her past. Even in the witness protection program, you know, you're always looking over your shoulder, wondering, when will my past catch up with me? And I've seen enough Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul to know that somebody always gives it up. Somebody always caves in and gives up the information. And so the person is always wondering, when will my past catch up with me? Well, if you're made alive in Christ, your past will never catch up with you. Your past will never be held against you because you are truly made new. And we see even from the example of Mary, who doesn't say or do anything in this passage, we see something of the glory of God's salvation and His new creating power. So, now what do we learn from Joseph? Well, verse 18 tells us that before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be with child. Now, we're not told how she was found to be with child, um, but we have to imagine that it became pretty obvious uh, pretty quickly to a 13- or 14-year-old girl. Um, I'm sure she couldn't help but notice that her body was doing weird things and changing in ways that maybe even terrified her. What in the world is happening to my body? And there were surely um, there were older women around her, other moms, who knew exactly what was going on. They had no idea how it was happening, but that they knew something was going on. And they, or maybe Mary herself, somebody uh, informed Joseph that, you know, what was actually taking place. Either way, Joseph is given what he must have regarded as devastating news. Absolutely devastating news. Not just devastating, but in some ways, life-destroying news. Because he had to figure out, what do I do with this woman to whom I am betrothed? In Luke's gospel, we're told that the angel appeared to the shepherds, and he said, the angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And so Christmas, um, you know, that's become the theme of Christmas. It is it's good tidings of great joy, but that wasn't what Joseph thought on that first Christmas. He didn't get good news, at least it didn't seem like it. He was informed that his fiancée was pregnant, and he knew that he was not the father. Now, what we learn here from Joseph is pretty remarkable. I owe this insight to my friend Ted, but it's something that I think is, is fascinating, really. And it says, sometimes God, before God takes you to the so-called next level in terms of knowledge of Him or service for Him or intimacy with Him, He knocks you down first. He knocks you down first. Joseph is, again, just dealt a devastating blow. He is informed that his bride-to-be is expecting a child. He knows he's not the father. 
And this had to be just an absolutely gut-wrenching reality. But the Lord had something beyond Joseph's wildest dreams in store for him. He would be the stepfather, as it were, of the Savior of the world. Here's what we learn from Joseph, our second point. For the Christian, God often humbles us to prepare us for a glory that is to come. This is the pattern we see throughout the Scriptures. A humbling takes place before exaltation. Suffering comes before glory. The beast of self-righteousness, to, to quote Martin Luther, must be completely annihilated and destroyed before we're able to be lifted up in repentant faith and restoration. Nobody likes to be humbled. I thought in preparation for this message, I might share one of life's most humbling moments for me, but then I decided against it. Why would I do that to myself? Nobody wants to be humbled. Nobody wants to, to be taken down a notch. Nobody wants to be dragged through the deep waters of embarrassment or suffering and pain. But it's through suffering, it's through humiliation, as God reminds us of how little we can do on our own, that God actually refines us. It's through suffering. It's as we are brought low that God prepares us to be lifted up by Him. And I know that some of you are swimming in deep waters this morning. I know that because you've told me that. I know some of you are, in fact, you feel like you're just barely treading water. And you don't know if you're going to make it. What I'm going to say to you, of course, is not going to make things necessarily easier or take away the sting. But it should help to know that even as you are in the pain you're in, and even if it's suffering that you've brought upon yourself, even in the midst of your suffering or the lowly state that you've been subjected to, there is a glory that awaits you if you are in Christ. It may not be immediate. It may not be in 2023 even. But there is a glory that awaits those who are in Christ. There is this rhythm to the Christian life that we see over and over and over in the Scriptures. And even Christ went through this. Suffering followed by exaltation. Humiliation that gives way to glory. If you're suffering this morning, you need to know God has not forgotten about you. You've not somehow slipped off of His radar. You're not in a situation or a circumstance that He is unaware of or not working through. Even if you are in a state, and again, I know this is the case for some of you, if you are in a case where you feel like, this is as low as I've ever been, God is preparing for you a glory that is to come. And I can't tell you when it will be, and I can't tell you what it will look like, but I can tell you that there's a rhythm we see in Scripture, and Joseph is a beautiful example of it, that suffering gives way to glory, humiliation gives way to exaltation. What did Joseph determine to do about Mary's unexpected pregnancy? Verse 19 says that being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So we don't have time to get into all the history of it, but let me just say this, that if such a situation took place in the first century 
uh, Mediterranean world, first century Jewish world, then the woman who was found to be unfaithful was to be humiliated. Go through a public trial, shamed, made to be a public spectacle for all to sneer and condemn and judge and whisper about. She would have been stigmatized her whole life. And one could argue that Joseph, being a just man, a man who was very keen on, on obeying the law of God, that he had every right to subject her, at least based on what he knew, to subject her to this humiliation. In fact, we could even go a step further and say, Joseph being such a just man, such a law-abiding man, he had, a, he had a responsibility to divorce Mary and to subject her to such shame. One historian says, infidelity during betrothal made divorce virtually obligatory. So Joseph had every right, some would argue, a responsibility to divorce Mary. But he doesn't. He actually, incredibly, he takes on Mary's shame. He knows what people are going to be whispering about him. He knows what people are going to be saying about him. This guy is weak. This guy is a fool. This guy is no man at all. Joseph would endure suffering because of his love for Mary. By taking on Mary's reproach, by taking on Mary's shame, Joseph would subtly point us to Jesus, the one who would take on the shame of the ones he loved. Matthew's already setting the stage for Jesus' ministry of grace. When Joseph plans to, to uh, quietly divorce his wife, his plans are changed when an angel He's visited from an angel telling him that the one in Mary's womb is conceived from the Holy Spirit. And that's not the only earth-shattering news. But he's told in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice he doesn't say he will save his people from the sins of the world. He says he will save his people from their sins. We lived in Southern California for eight years, and there's a retired pastor there uh, who just turned 91 uh, this last year, this year, and I just love and respect the guy so much. He lives in Hollywood. He lives practically under the shadow of the Hollywood sign, and even at 91, he, he's making an impact in a very godless city and region uh, by his teaching and by his evangelism. Uh, he's written a commentary on Matthew that, uh, to me, is probably the best out there. He studied Matthew for 60-plus years. I don't know anybody else who studied at that level for so long. And he said one of the mo most eye-opening discoveries that he came to for six-plus six decades rather of studying Matthew was that Jesus does not allow His people to demonize other, quote, enemies... But instead, he concentrates his warnings on his own people's sin. In other words, Jesus doesn't allow his people to be constantly focused on all the sins of the big bad world. He instead talks about, he, he points to their own sin. And even in all the talking that Jesus does about hell, and he does a lot, he talks about it quite a bit, um, Jesus talks about hell not as a place where the external enemies go, although certainly they go there, but Jesus presents hell as an existential threat for the people who think and say they're the people of God. And so what, what Jesus does is He continually points the church, His own people, to their own sins, 
rather than allowing them to be focused on the world out there. The point being that we are in serious danger, grave spiritual danger, if we spend our time looking at all the evils of the world, but we fail to consider the evils of our own hearts, our own selfishness, our own greed, our own lust, our own laziness, all of those things which so often characterize our hearts. And so Jesus says, the, the angel says that his people, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came so that we could be forgiven of every offense that we've ever committed against God and each other, which is really the only way that life can be lived with any sort of peace or any sort of fullness. I was sitting by the fireplace in my living room just yesterday morning. I was reading what the so-called Westminster divines wrote about justification in the, the 1640s uh, while being mocked by my kids for reading it. But um, and it was actually pretty riveting stuff, to be honest with you, reading, reading about this understanding of justification. What, what they were so keen to do was to capture the fullness of this doctrine. It's not, justification is not just being declared not guilty, although praise God it is fully that. But it's also being regarded as though I've never sinned. So it's not just being considered someone you know, who's been forgiven, but being recognized and regarded as someone who's never sinned, being credited with Jesus' obedience uh, in such a way that by faith we are regarded ourselves as perfectly obedient, looked at by God as those who, have been, who are approved by Him, as those who are accepted by Him, as those who are loved by Him and objects of His divine favor. By saying He will save His people from their sins, Matthew means that Jesus not only he offers not just forgiveness, that's one side of salvation, but complete and total acceptance by the God of the universe, no longer condemned, no longer haunted by our past, but completely and unwaveringly approved by God because of Christ. Chuck DeGroat is a counselor professor and author who lives in Holland, Michigan. Uh, you may have heard the name or maybe heard the voice if you've you ever listened to the, uh, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. He was on that several times. But um, DeGroat tells a story of one of his very first counseling sessions he ever had. 27 years old, you know, of course, and I did a little bit of counseling in 30 and early 30s, and, you know, people come in, you think, I have no idea. How am I going to help this person? Like, I don't know what I'm going to say. There's a sense of unease, a sense of nervousness. Well, he said his, one of his very first counseling sessions was with, it just happened to be one of the most prominent men in the community, a man who was known by everyone. And he came in, he was a respected businessman, a very wealthy man. He came in and sat down in the chair, and he began the session by saying, my dad would never play sports with me growing up. I tried so hard to get my dad to show attention, just to play sports with me. He never would. He wouldn't even play, play catch with me. He was always too busy. Sometimes, this is the guy, the counselee, sometimes, he said, sometimes I would leave my glove in a place that my dad just couldn't possibly miss. I would put it right on his desk, right on the papers that he's working on, just trying to get my dad's attention, just to play catch. And he said that 
And he, this businessman, as he sit, sat there, his eyes welled up with tears. And this is a guy who grew up watching, you know, the Yankees in their heyday. And, um, and he just loved baseball. And he said all that he ever wanted was for his dad just to play catch with him. But he never would. He always had an excuse. And then Chuck DeGroat, again, this young, young, inexperienced counselor, he listened to this middle-aged man tell the story as the guy, he said, the guy who never looked up, he looked at the floor the whole time and just started sobbing. And Chuck DeGroat, 27 years old, I mean, he had the training, but I, 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 he said, I didn't know what to say. I had no idea what to say. He said, the first thing that came to my mind was, he said, he said I said to the guy was, if I were your dad, I know that I would have loved to play catch with you. He said the guy just lost it. I mean, it was uncontrollable, sobbing. He said Chuck DeGroat would say that was one of the most stunning and sacred moments of his entire career. Here before me was a grown man, he said, was a successful and powerful man, but still a rejected child. The pain had been bottled up for decades, and when it came out, the dam broke, and it was unstoppable. The sting of rejection sometimes lingers for years. And 25 years later, after a quarter century of counseling folks, DeGroote has concluded that of all of our desires, perhaps the greatest, the most profound, is the desire to be accepted the desire to be known and loved, the desire to be approved. Well, the salvation that Jesus provides is that and more, forgiveness and approval. Not only does He accept us in Christ, He actually enjoys us and delights in us. Here's our final point. As what we can learn from, in this story from Jesus, the deepest cry of the human heart to be enjoyed by God is answered by God's total acceptance of us in Christ. And I think it's no exaggeration to say it's probably one of the most difficult concepts in the whole world to fully grasp that the God of the universe would actually love us and like us. Not just make a commitment to us, which He does by, by His love, but actually like us, actually enjoy us. But that's an aspect of God's forgiveness in Christ. When we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, not only does God forgive us and make us new, but He adopts us into His family as cherished sons and daughters. It's not like the Witness Protection Program where our past can sneak up and ruin us at any moment. It is complete and utter forgiveness and total and unwavering acceptance through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, how did he make that possible? How, how did Christ make forgiveness possible? It wasn't just by being born, but he was born to die. He was born to live the sinless life. He was born to completely accomplish all that Adam failed to do, fully obey all the commands of God, so that we, by faith, could receive a righteousness apart from our own. One biblical scholar writes this, Matthew's entire gospel is to be read in light of its end. So the only way to understand the beginning is to consider it in light of the end. And what do we see at the end? Christ died 
a brutal and cruel and horrible death. The long-awaited, long-anticipated Savior who came to bring true freedom and peace with God did so by living for us His perfect life in our place and by dying for us His substitutionary death, His resurrection, and by those Jesus destroyed the barrier of guilt and shame between us and God and effected a reunion with God uh, that is ours by faith. Do you long to experience peace with God? Do you really want to know that your past is behind you, never to be held against you again? Do you want to live with a sense of meaning and purpose? None of that is possible apart from Christ. But in Christ, we have not just forgiveness, but all of the spiritual blessings both here and in heaven. Let's pray.